share the story of Wes Anderson. Oh, it's a great one. Yeah, he like he shows the film and they get people to leave comments and he just gets all these horrible, horrible like feedback. People were standing up and leaving the theater like during the movie. But then there's this one comment that is like glowing. And he's basically like, that's the person who I made the movie for. Welcome back to The Craft, where we explore the creative process. I'm Carter, a PhD student and writer. And I'm Colby. I'm product manager, marketer, music producer. Today, we're talking about protocols for revising your creative work. So I feel like we've all heard the phrase a lot, like writing is revision, or you know, you need to just keep revising. You got to chisel the work down and refine and sand it down. And all these different metaphors and descriptions about the importance of revising your work before you share it with the world. But how do you revise? That's really kind of what I want to talk through today with you, Carter, is just like, what does it look like in your craft? And then maybe there's lessons that I can take away from music and then vice versa. But where do you want to start this? Well, the the thought that I had here right off the bat was that, you know, we talk about revision as one of the creative first principles. Like you said, it's something that we hear a lot about. And we talked about on the show a lot, but I think this episode to me seems like a specific turn towards the practical. We all know it's a process. We all know it requires time and effort, but I think it can be a little bit disorientating. Where do I put the efforts? Like, what do I do? What is revising the verb? What does that mean? And so I think this episode in my mind is kind of turning us to say, okay, well, what do I actually do when I revise? So that's how I'm approaching it. I think we dive in, man. Like what, what is revision to you? Like what is, what are the things that you do to revise your work? Perfect. Do you want to lead the way here? The first one is that I think it's important to separate creating your work and revising your work and make another way of saying that is you have a non-judgmental face where you just really try to trust yourself and go with your instincts and put things down on the paper, put sounds into the, into Ableton. And then you have the judgmental phase where you're going back and you're reviewing very critically because it's very easy to be judging your work prematurely and then getting in sort of a writer's block. Next thing I put was, I feel like developing taste is an iterative process, both developing taste overall for your craft, but then also the revision process itself is going to, you're going to develop a taste for what should this specific piece of work look like, sound like, feel like as you keep chipping away at it. So This is more of like a mindset thing as you go into revision, just like it's not going to be a one-time thing. This is very iterative. You sand down a corner, then you do it again, then you move over to a different part of the work and you fix that. It's super iterative and one change over one part of the project is gonna impact another part. So iterative process is kind of the second piece here. So those are just high level thoughts that I thought were interesting when I started to sit down and think about how I think about revision. And then I've got some tactics I can dive into, but. What are your thoughts on that stuff? Does it spark anything for you? No, that's great. So the first protocol for revision is still somewhat abstract, right, in being a mindset. But I think it's really important. The editor versus writer distinction or the kind of creative helmet and then you put on the editorial or you use kind of the the judgmental approach. I think that's really important. And that's something I've, I've had, you know, I have recently been trying to get better at or had to enact with just working on a chapter for the dissertation. Working on a chapter on Steinbeck right now, and I really had to fight the urge to spend 
time looking at how paragraphs are linking together and how movements are composing. We'll talk more about this later. But I had to basically stop the editorial mindset that was coming in and trying to plan the chapter while I was writing it. And it's just too big. Like You can get away with that if you're writing smaller essays or posts, let's say a Substack post, right? You kind of want to be do that. You want to do that at the same time. You can afford to do that. But I was, it was just kind of paralyzing me because I wasn't, you know, I had all these things I wanted to say, but I was trying to organize them while writing them. And I was finally like, no, okay, I'm just going to write each one of my close readings, the things that I want to say and not worry about how I'm fitting them all together. Even the sentences, I'm not going to allow there to be friction on these. I'm going to write them. I'm going to know they're bad. I'm going to know that I don't have to come back and fix them. And I may want to say more, but I'm just going to get the thing down. And so the last two days, since I've really tried to make that shift, have been really productive. So I went over my word count yesterday, uh, wrote about 800 words, and then about 1,300 this morning. So it's been really productive to try to pull out of that editorial mindset. So I don't know, that's a practical thing where I think that's definitely something that it can kind of stifle the creativity, but also I just don't think you're going to be as sharp if you're trying to do two things at once. This is so good. So I'm, I'm organizing my thoughts as we talk through this. I think it'd be better if we do one protocol at a time and talk through it. I Sorry, I kind of jumped through like three at the same time. No, that's good. Any thoughts about the iterative process before we move on to another one? I think it's just important to remember that it's not a, you don't have to fix everything all at once and it's not going to happen like that. And so I, I think that's just, like you said, these are frameworks. These are kind of paradigms, approaches, postures towards the work. And we're just not going to be able to fix everything at once. So you've kind of got to just, you got to cultivate some flexibility and some patience with it. And it's going to happen over time. And I think part of that's too, just like a time portion of time is involved. Like you're going to have to see it a couple of times. You're going to have to spend time with it. Different days, different eyes, different concerns. It's just going to be iterative. So almost like calm down. <laughs> I don't know. If I'm talking to myself, I'm like, okay, calm down. It not Everything's not going to get fixed today, but you can fix a couple of things and that's that's worth doing. I love it. Quick recap. Protocol one, separate creation and revision. Protocol two, accept the iterative process. You don't have to do it all at once. Protocol three, well, actually, let's do, let's do a popcorn now. Let's go over to one of yours and then we can keep going through mine. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Let's say protocol three is thinking about the goal of the work. And so this one, you know, as I was working through my kind of protocols, obviously I was kind of thinking (laughs) through writing. It's what's on the mind. It's what I do most of. And one of the really helpful questions, and I kind of phrase these protocols in the form of questions, is to ask yourself, what is the project or the piece of writing or the song as it stands what is it actually doing or actually saying? Because as we work on something, right, we kind of have the idea of what we want to say or we have the idea of what it sounds like. But then like the first step for me is to kind of step back and say, okay, if I just read this without all the thought processes and the the readings that I've done, if I'm just coming to this as an outside person and I just take it for what it is, is it even solving the problem that I wanted to solve? Or is it even making the argument I think I was making? Is it even sounding like I think it's sounding like? And so I think for me, one of the first steps, first protocols is, okay, what do I actually have on the page? Because maybe I've gotten really distracted from the main argument. And that the first step is to kind of say, okay, this is the main argument, not that. I thought I was talking about this the whole time, but I'm not really. And so for me, I think the first step is to to step back, think, okay, what am I 
you know, what's the goal? What's the big goal here? Maybe it's the chapter I want to present, you know, X, Y, and Z argument. Or maybe the song, you know, I have specific goals in mind that the song accomplishes on the album, right? And I, and I, I want to first step back and say, this is what I think I'm doing. Is that what I'm actually doing? And so that's kind of my first protocol. It's really kind of like put on the objective glasses. Ignore, try to forget your background and what you know and imagine if I was the end user with this work, what am I going to learn and feel? And does it then align with my original goal? Is that essentially it? Yeah, essentially. I mean, you've been in the weeds so long at this point. Let's say you've been drafting this and you've gone through a lot of different drafts, right? You're, you're kind of revising, but now you're like, you want to sit down and start the revision process. Everything's there for you to play with and work with. I think the first thing is to get really honest with what's actually there. And so for me, this happens as kind of a, a shift of asking myself, like, is this really doing what I want it to do? Or has or have I gotten distracted in parts? Or is this about something else that I've, I started writing on? And so I think it's just a return to, in short, yeah, to answer your question, but I think it's just a return to try to get some distance from it and try to get out of what you think you're doing and say, what's actually happening on the track or what's actually happening on the page? And so trying to get some distance from it. I think that's really good. Protocol number four, find the root problem. I think this is a very high level thing, but the practical example that comes to mind for me is that I'm working with an artist, we're working on a mix, and they're like, ah, the bass needs to come up. Sometimes that's truly all that needs to happen and that you turn the bass up and then the song sounds better. But then the more you listen to music and develop taste and you kind of analyze how great songs are made, you might realize, man, the bass is what stood out for me in this song, so I want my song to have a lot of bass. But that doesn't always mean the bass is turned up. And so it's easy, I think, to jump to conclusions sometimes about the problem before you actually figure, oh, is it, you know, like there could be five reasons they want the bass turned up. The vocals are too loud. The guitar is too overpowering in the left ear. It's easy to get attached to a solution before you identify what the actual problem is. That's probably enough explanation on that, but really I think just whenever you're revising, having a mindset of what is the root problem here and what's kind of like an 80-20 look at how can I make this work better first before I get sucked into these tiny details. I think there's a really strong similarity between that and protocol three. I think these are kind of getting at the same thing. I mean, one, one was mine, one was yours. I think they're both asking us to go back and say, what's the main problem? that I'm trying to solve, am I doing it, and I'm trying not to get distracted by the minutiae or the things that aren't going to be global concerns. And that's one that kept coming to my mind, the distinction between kind of global concerns and local concerns. You know, before I get down to the, the sound of the bass, what are the lyrics doing? What are the bigger movements doing? Is it solving the problem? So I think those, are, those fit nicely together. I think the only difference between them is that the other thing I'm trying to say is that it's easy to have a problem in the revision. So like this paragraph something's wrong with it. And it's a bad example, but it's like you're focusing on the topography and not the content, or you're focusing on the sentence structure whenever it's really just the whole paragraph is in the wrong section of the article. So it's like, find the root problem of the specific revision problem that you're working on Yeah, is kind of what I was trying to say here first. So I don't know if that deserves to be a protocol for or not. It probably could just be combined, but... No, for sure. I think I think there's similarities, but that's the right distinction. What's what's next for you? I think you've got some more written here. Yeah, so protocol five, I like that we're numbering them. This is a good addition. <laughs> it's helping us scaffold here, which is actually what protocol five is all about. So for me, I was kind of working from top 
to bottom here. And so moving down closer to the local, after you've dealt with the idea of these broad goals, the next question I kind of ask myself broadly is how do things hold together? So whenever you're trying to, let's say, right, you're composing a song with multiple instruments or you're writing an argument that's going to have, you know, an introduction, an overview, a complication, you know, evidence, whatever it is, you're always going to be kind of scaffolding things. Like we're always arranging. And so the next question for me is, how is the arrangement working? So very practically, at this point, I'm usually thinking about the paragraph and really just asking, is this paragraph coming at the right time? I like to think about this as kind of a movement, kind of how you would have a movement in a song, an introduction, you know, intro, the chorus, the bridge. You know, things are going to move together. And how are things holding together? Is there something I talk about on page six that really I ought to just move and we need to know on page two? Is there stuff on page two that it, you know needs to get moved elsewhere? And so really thinking once about once we've kind of thought about the thing in, it, in itself, in its entirety, what about the big parts? How do the big parts hold together? Uh, and so before trying to fix the paragraph, it's worth asking, what is the paragraph accomplishing? Does it need to do that here? Does it need to do that elsewhere? And so my next question that I kind of ask myself there is, how are things holding together? I love it. That's a good one. Movement. How do things hold together? So protocol six, I'm going to go with the car test. So the car test is specific to music, but I think there's a general idea here. So very common part, any producer or artist that's listening to this already knows what I'm talking about, but every time you get to a certain stage in your process with a song, you want to export the MP3, you put it on your phone, and you go out to the car, and you put it on the speakers. And it's kind of a metaphor for like, also you put it on your headphones, you listen on your iPhone, you listen on your computer speakers, and the the monitors in the studio, like really the idea here is there's a couple different goals, but the ultimate test of a song is how does it sound in the car, right? You're driving around with your friends. How does the song feel? And so really just the, I think this is more of a, a, a great part of revision is wherever your work is going to end up, whether it's you're writing a sub stack, it's going to land in the email inbox. You're working on a song. It's going to be played in the car on Spotify you're creating some digital art that's going to be posted on Instagram page. Looking at your piece of work in the context of that final medium is very, very useful because it kind of goes back to what we have in protocol three around what is the user going to, or what's the end person going to actually experience? And does that achieve your goal? If you're making a song that's a certain genre and you want people to feel this and hear it in the summer, and it's supposed to be a really good vibe and it's great for a pool party, then you need to kind of go test that song out and see if it really works in that way. And you learn a lot that you can be really obsessed. You're listening on your headphones and you can have a very distracted opinion because you're focused on these little details, but you get in the car, it uncovers all these new things because it's a different system. So do you do anything like that for yourself? I'm not sure if I have any direct one-to-one correlations on it, but you know what I was thinking of is this is really just being concerned about medium too, which is something I talk a lot about in kind of the freshman composition classes that, you know, kind of the first thing students, one of the first things they start, you know, to learn about rhetoric is the importance of audience, but also the importance of the medium, right? Because whether you're giving something with visual aids, whether you're, you know, you're 
basically, whether you're composing a tweet or you're writing a scholarly paper, right? Those are totally different mediums with different conventions, which have implications for language and tone and emotion, right? That's an exaggerated version, but like we always have to be thinking about medium because it's going to affect the writing. It's going to affect our choices we make. So I think that's that's a great protocol to have. Think through medium, and if it's something like, hey, it's eventually going to hit somebody's sound system in their car. Like, do that physical thing. Add that to your protocol. Love it. What do you, What do you have next for us? Nice. So, the next one for me, which is what is this protocol seven, is to think about transitions. And so, this is a very writerly one. For this one, once you've established the movements, and you can kind of see which direction my thought's going. Once you kind of have the movements, then you've got to link them together. And you've got to have some tendons here to hold these joints and muscles together. And the transitions do two things. One, they do the obvious thing, is they transition the reader from different ideas. But the really kind of creative revising, you know, creative process achievement that they accomplish is that they force you to really deal with what the paragraph accomplishes. And so you have to, when you're writing a transition and you're moving from ideas, you have it forces you to say, okay, where am I transitioning to? What does this paragraph actually say? And so it forces you to get really clear about what your paragraph is doing because in order to summarize it in the transition sentence, right, a topic sentence, you have to know exactly what's happening. And so once again, it's throwing you back into the mindset of, okay, if I'm going to write a transition, what am I transitioning to? And then you got to get really clear about what you're transitioning to. And this is the thing that undergraduates have a really hard time doing. And it's something I talk a lot about in writing classes is the transitions between ideas are often abrupt, right? Here's, a, here's an idea. Maybe it's a really good one. Here's another compelling idea. They're related, but that inference is happening in your head. It's not happening on the page. And so what what a, you know, a more effective writer will do is take that inference that's happening between one idea and the other and make it really explicit, right? Put the road sign to show that you're moving from ideas. Basically, you know, I encourage them, if it feels a little exaggerated, like you're telling me and it's kind of a duh thing, that's okay. I'd rather you have something that's too heavy-handed in showing me how ideas relate to each other than not. And oftentimes, it's not too heavy-handed. It's exactly what you need. Interesting. I don't know what this is sparking in your mind, but my next kind of step, my next protocol, once I figure out the movements, is how do I cinch those movements together? That's really cool. I like that a lot. There's a very direct correlation in music where you, you need to start with the building blocks first, the chord progressions, the melody, and the lyrics. Like grab a guitar, grab a piano, write the song. Then you have the sections, and then you start piecing the other. Okay, how do I go from a chorus into a verse? Or maybe you literally just write one section. So you have, these are the movements. And then, yeah, how do I move from this chorus back into the verse? And that's, there's a whole new layer when you get into production of adding sounds and effects and different things. And so I think it's very helpful in music to do a pass and go through your song and just think transitionally how do these transitions work and how can I improve them, make them smoother, more impactful? Because it's easy easy for me for sure to just focus on these other layers and to forget that that's even a thing. You know, you're just focused on moving to the next. Okay, I did a paragraph. Let's do the next one. I did the next one. And it's easy to forget. I know how these relate or I know how this feels to me, but 
is the transition smooth enough? And I think there's also a lyrical side in music too, where you can have little ad libs and things between sections that help link lyrics together. So there's a lot of different ways this could play into different mediums. I'm sure it's true with video as well, because there's so much of a heavy transition component within video, like shifting scene to scene even. And there's some crazy like creative ways that people can do that today with tech. So are you referring to the PowerPoint slide where it folds it up as an airplane and throws <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. But no, those are all good. Like I didn't think of any of those, but those are obvious connections and I think it's true. And I think we can just get siloed easily. Like I'm just working on the chorus. Now I'm just working on the first verse. And it's like we just kind of neglect I mean you can we neglect that little kind of if you think about it as like I don't know, that thin line that runs between them is really important, but it's easy to That's miss. That's a really good one. So I, I kind of want to go through the, the rest of yours because they're so linked together. Do you want to share the next two or do you want to keep ping-ponging? I can, okay. Let me share one more. I think I may just cut my last one. I think I'll just include it. I'll, I'll absorb it. The next one, the next protocol, protocol eight, I'm kind of calling necessity. And so after the kind of global concerns are getting taken care of, you know, you now are in the realm of the local and you can start asking that question that every creative, I think, has to ask. Certainly, writers are going to give this advice over and over and over again in different, in different ways. Is this necessary is the question that each sentence kind of has to go through. And what you're trying to do here is just cut the fat. There's most, most of the time, uh, at least, I don't know, I'm going to generalize a little bit here. The problem facing most writers is a problem of excess, not of not saying enough. Now, there are times where you need to elaborate, you know, especially in earlier writing, undergraduate writing. Oftentimes, they're, they're not saying enough. But then you get to the point where you're saying too much or maybe you're saying an idea, but you're using too much language and it gets cluttered. Like I think we go back to the Annie Dillard quote about the sock and the machine. It's like you get all this excess language and it's floating around and it's just clogging up the idea. So basically, how can you reduce, how can you cut down, how can you distill your your idea into kind of its sparse, necessary language? And this doesn't mean writing a bunch of short declarative sentence. No, it, it means looking for places to press together in order to make it more let's say, energized. And, you know, I'm almost getting the metaphor of pressing atoms together, right? Or, or pressing kind of I don't know, electromagnetic fields together. And then as they get together, they start to right, emit energy. And I think that's kind of what happens is our, our writing is very loose and it's, it's floating around out here. And then in revision, I start to ask, well, is this necessary? Is this how I want to phrase this? Can this be phrased better? And things start to condense to where really great prose will be almost like poetry in that you can't take out a, a, a single word in a poem without dramatically altering the stanza or even the poem itself. And so when you see a poem where every single word is necessary, right, that's a good poem. It's doing something because the moment you take out a word, you've, you've, you've removed something essential. And that's basically what I think the question of necessity is asking. And this is, I kind of took a long way to get here, but are the words you're using necessary and are they the right words? That's kind of the granule. That's the granule kind of finish from moving from the global to the local, right? There's there's rhythm tests, which I like to say, right? Reading it aloud, you know, how does it strike my ear? But the last kind of 
protocol revision is to get down to the sentence level and and really rigorously put them through the runner, right? Is is this sentence lifting how it should? Is it functioning how it should? Is it sounding how it should? Is it necessary? Should it be a footnote? Do I even need to talk about this? Right? How can I get you know crystalline clear on what I'm up to? So that that's the next protocol. There's a lot of there's a lot in there, but really dealing with the necessity and how something is actually coming across. This perfectly ties in with the draft number four quote that I found last night from John McPhee's book. If a writer of prose knows enough about what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows and the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one eighth of it being above water. I thought that was beautifully written, reflecting on the the Ernest Hemingway metaphor. And it's so, and this was in the section, I should have said this, this was in the section called omission, which I think is just almost an, synonymous with necessity. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, dude, that, that that's a real famous one, obviously, in, in writing circles. A lot of times talked about primarily in regard to fiction, of not overstating it, but showing and letting the reader kind of make the connections themselves. But I think it also applies to nonfiction prose, to other writing. And it's kind of like a trust that the reader is going to engage. And that that reader engagement is really what gives, I think, art a spark. If everything, if you don't have to do anything and it just hits you mindlessly, like that's just kitsch or it's just bad because there's no room for you to participate. But good, you know, excellent art is is bringing you in to participate. And so you got to trust the, the reader in some ways. But then also I think, you know, omission is usually a good thing. <laughs> Cutting is usually a good thing. Like a bunch of, there's tons of great writers who's their editor has been like, okay, cut it in half because you don't need that much. Like that just seems to be a common refrain I hear. A hundred percent. It's almost like that there's a rhythm. There's like construction, then there's like a deconstruction. Is this needed? Is this needed? And then a reconstruction or just leaving what remained, you know? Ooh, I love that. With music, I see, you know, you want to simplify, 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 but then it's like, oh, this feel is too empty. It's really just this balancing act of leaving enough space for things. Like music would not work without space. All these things are go through that pattern, I think. Gosh, that's so good. And I'm. it's so interesting you said that. I just read a line from Gabriel Marcel just yesterday about he, he's talking about something else, but one of his lines, his metaphors, he goes, there is no music without silence for that exact same reason. It's like the silence between notes is what allows for a melody to happen. Like, And so there there needs to be some sort of space or it feels cluttered. And this is, I'm going to sum up everything I said. Necessity, this kind of protocol, is looking for clutter. It's like cleaning out the closet. Keep the stuff you wear. Get rid of the thing that you hope to wear for some occasion that will never happen, right? Clear out the clutter. Beautiful. Love that. Protocol nine that I put in here is references, or maybe you could also call this the reference mix. So this is a really critical part of the music, and it's one of the most painful parts. You play your song, you listen to it, you might do the car test or just listen while you're working in your room or whatever, and then you pull up one of your favorite songs. And it's not always a fair test because you're playing your song that's in stage two or whatever, or mix three, and you're playing a professionally mastered song. But this is the process, right? We play our song, then we play the mastered song. The end goal is you're gonna you're gonna see how closely your song could hold up if it played in the playlist next to this other song. 
And what happens is you just start to see all the flaws. And it's very important that you pick the right reference mix. There's a lot of work that needs to go into. This is the same genre. That's a good the point. same style. You don't want to, you know, plagiarize or steal, but you can't be comparing apples and oranges. Do you think there's any other comparisons to other crafts for that? Oh man, absolutely. I mean, there's times where I read something from Cormac McCarthy and I just want to throw the book across the room because I'm like, he's got no business writing this good and I'll never be able to write anything half as good as this. And you're just like, it just puts your work into perspective in such a helpful way. I, yeah, I just think that's invaluable because I think if you spend too much time with the work itself, you can kind of convince yourself like there's a lot of self-delusion, I think. Yes, happens. the more, yeah. <laughs> and this can go both ways. You can get kind of discouraged with the work and it can be really good. I mean, Steinbeck, when he finished The Grapes of Wrath, said, man, I hope it's good. Like he was, there was a lot of self-doubt in there because he was so involved in it. But you could also think something's really good. And then it's like the comparison just helps give you a metric in which to compare. Like you, you can't compare and you can't evaluate without a metric. And so you need to go to the masters. You need to go to people who are doing that genre, that style, and see how they're doing it because it's, go- it's, it's going to help put yours in that new perspective. I think we've talked a lot about that today. Like trying to get a new perspective is, is huge. And I think that's even what we talked about in some of our early first principle conversations about revision is it it's all about if we take down kind of the etymology of the word revision right we're, we're seeing again to see again something to see it differently and i think that's a great way how do you see it differently you go look at something else and then you return that's like the hook of the episode right there <laughs> revision that's great okay so protocol 10 is work destructively i want to work my thoughts out on this one live i see a huge problem whenever I create. It's just optionality. There's a million things I can do. I'm working on a song. There's a million effects, a million different sounds, a million directions I could take the song, and then all the permutations of combining those things. And it's overwhelming. And this is super hyper-specific to music production. But one of the temptations when you're making a song, let's say you put a couple effects on your vocals, you can always undo. It's all digital, right? So maybe this is just general to creating digitally. Maybe you're editing a photo, editing a video. You make a decision creatively. It could be a transition or anything else. And then there's there's often ways that you can apply that effect and sort of like lock it in or freeze it. And you it would take a lot of work to undo or you would have to start over and do all the changes again. And so working destructively as a contrast to this would force you to accept that change. I put these effects on my vocal. I can't undo them unless I want to do a crap ton of work. And so I'm just committing to it. And when I commit to that effect in that setting, then I have to work the other parts of the song around it. And I can't just keep changing my mind about every single decision. So let me try to recap this in a shorter way. That was very long-winded. You know, working destructively is this idea that you you need to make quick decisions as you create, lock them in, and then revise around those because too much optionality can just lead to decision fatigue and you lose progress. You can just get stuck. What do you think about that? I mean, that makes sense. I think specifically for music production, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of tools that like Ableton has like I mean it's probably just staggering 
This is a way to say, hey, you've got to make some decisions, make one, and don't give yourself the option to kind of retrograde and go back. And in some ways, this sounds counterintuitive to be a protocol for revision, because revision is all about going back iteratively. But I don't, I don't think it necessarily is. Like, you can easily overwork something. There's a line from Guy Davenport where he's talking about the quality of a piece of writing. And he's like, there, there's no like magic equation that the, the more you work on something, the better it's going to be. Basically saying, hey, it's possible to write something excellent. I think about some of Bob Dylan's songs. I mean, he wrote them incredibly quickly, some of them. I think for a few, I mean, we're talking under an hour, a couple hours. I think there's a temptation because oftentimes it takes a lot of time to get something excellent, usually. I think you can kind of get into like a temptation to be like, oh, if I'm not going through 15 different iterations, then I must not be working hard enough or it must not be there. It must not be ready. Sometimes like you just got to go with it because otherwise you might be losing something really good because you feel like, I don't know, this compulsion that you have to redo it in order for it to get better. So I like the idea of, hey, you got to give yourself constraints. I think this could be like a self-imposed constraint that can be productive because if there were no constraints, the options are endless and there's you never have to end on something and then you end up having, I don't know, 15 different songs in one song because you've gone through it so many times. So I really like it's this. It's honestly, it is a good cap off to the list because it's almost just trust yourself. You know, you've got Ooh, all these different nice. ways that you need to doubt yourself. And then the last one is just trust yourself. Like make a decision, put it out Perfect. there, go with it. And don't be afraid to be imperfect because it's going to be imperfect. And spending more time on it li- truly could make it worse. Wow. What a good cap. All right, what you got for bonus? What's bonus content? My bonus one is collaboration. I think there needs to be some part in the revision process where you gather feedback at the right time. Absolutely. A small kind of who's your target audience. You've got a couple friends that are in that audience. You don't want it to just be your mom because you don't just want to hear great job. Unless of course your mom is, you know, highly qualified to give feedback, then go for it. But (laughs) I mean, I think that's, you know, the idea here is finding the right people that are going to give you the hard critical feedback get enough of it that you have some kind of sample size of a couple different opinions. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we could talk through like, who are those people? Because I think that's important. This can't be a bonus. This has got to be an actual one. I can't believe we haven't talked about I think this. it's critical. Like you, yeah. you need feedback. You have to. Okay. This is not bonus. This protocol is, 11. This is, this is canon. <laughs> this is protocol 11. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's critical. The others are just going to see, go to someone you trust, go to someone you admire, and get their feedback. And then I think in some ways, shun the feedback of everybody else. That's <laughs> you know, really the I, meat of this. Like, who do you go to? Yeah. I mean, I think it's got to be people who you respect, who are doing the thing that you hope to do. Like, for me, it's going to be, you know, Steve and Eric on my committee. It's like, if if they think something's good, then I could have literally, I don't know, I could have 500 people not like it, and I'm still like, if they think it's good, like, I don't care. Like, I don't know. I think it's finding the, the people that you can trust and say, man, their artistic palette, like their taste is really good. Like if it's good enough for them, like that's what I care about. Wait, so can you share the, share the story of uh, Wes Anderson v- making his first movie? Right, because that's like oh, perfect yeah, yeah, yeah. example of like finding the right audience. Oh, it's a great one. Yeah, he like I can't remember the details, so I'll be broad. He shows like one of his first films, and I don't think it's like I don't think this is Bottle Rocket. I think it may actually. I think it is Bo- Bottle Rocket's like his first 
film. I don't think it was a short or anything before that. But he shows the film, and they do like a screening, and they get people to leave comments, and he just gets all these horrible, horrible like feedback. People, He said people were standing up and leaving the theater like during the movie. But then there's this one comment that is like glowing. And he's basically like, that's the person who I made the movie for. And he's like ecstatic. And there's like all these people didn't get it. And they hated it and they left. But the person that he that he wrote it for, that person got it. And that was like super encouraging for him. And I think to finish the story, and you could probably find this on YouTube, but I think he ends up meeting the person later on. He's like, I know who you are. You're the one person who like liked the film. And so it was this nice kind of, it was the nice like kind of circular ending for it. But yeah, I mean, I think it's collaborate, but collaborate with people who you trust. I mean, the peer review you do in class is a good practice to get along and, and help other people. But like, you know, Joe Schmo's review of your work, I mean, it may be interesting and, and maybe there's something generative, but I mean, you're not going to put the same weight. Like if you send a copy to, you know, someone and then you send a copy of a song to Rick Rubin, it's like, okay, obviously Rick Rubin's... A <laughs> opinion about the song is going to carry more weight. And so I think it's, it's you know, find the people that you trust and you admire and make those kind of your, your outside voices. I think there's some more detailed ways too to do this or like more like super tactical things. Like one, I think of how I know that there's some artists that have put out parts of songs on TikTok, gotten feedback, and then built the song off of the feedback. Like, just feeling, oh, wow, this one short went viral. So that's the one I'm going to keep writing. That's an interesting tactic there to go straight to your audience. And another one is, you know, like Cal Newport, I listen to his podcast a lot and he's always sharing his ideas from his books on the podcast and on his newsletter. And then he gets feedback from his audience. So there's sort of a broader revision of like the ideas he's writing and working on. Yeah, nice. I feel like it depends on kind of goals too. If I've got an audience who loves my music and I, I want to include them in my creative process, like that's cool. Like that's super cool to have their input then kind of direct you. Like it's a new kind of constraint. And I think that's totally useful. It just depends what you're making. If you're making music for your audience, that's awesome. It just depends who your audience is, I think. I don't know. What was your what was your caveat there? Well, no, I was just gonna say I think there's that both matter and maybe they don't always matter, but you're always gonna have this mismatch every once in a while of, this is my favorite song, it flops. But then I yes. show it to another yeah, producer yeah, yeah. and they're like, oh, you did that one thing. And I'm like, yes, nobody noticed that. And so that's yes. that's the <laughs> audience of the practitioner and then the audience of the listener or the actual like end yeah. person you're going after. So I think that both matter, but maybe to different degrees and different, depending on who you are. Yeah, and how you measure success too. I mean, if you're trying to sell a song or, you know, I hope that eventually when I write this novel, I've got a little bit of it, but you know, dissertation right now. It's like, if there's a couple people who I really value their opinion, like it, like that's a success. Like it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a New York Times you know. bestseller to... Yeah, and that, I, I think I read something from Jim Harrison that said like, it may not have been, I can't remember who it was. He said, if you have a New York Times bestseller, that's probably a negative thing about the quality of your book. It was this very, I mean, very wow. erudite kind of... <laughs> Hot I think take. it was a Harper... <laughs> can't remember who it was. It was a really famous editor who was being interviewed on One True Podcast, the Hemingway podcast. It was Yeah, it was a super hot take. I think he was like, if it's super popular, it must be vapid, which obviously we would disagree with. You know, that's not a direct ratio, but I get we get what he's saying. Well, there you have it. I mean, those are 
the 11 protocols for revising your creative work. This is fun, man. I feel like we could revise this fun. list to be a little more organized sure. in the structure and stuff, but that those are all great. Good stuff. And you know, let me do a little plug here to anyone still listening to us. Hey, send us, send us some emails at heycrabpodcast at gmail.com about what you want to hear us talk about because you know we would love to hear feedback from you all we value your feedback we want you to collaborate with us here on the podcast because you know we we have in mind a broader creative community when we when we talk about these things so yeah send us some feedback let's 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 get something on the books from a listener i'd love to do a listener-based episode so oh totally yeah any topics that's a great idea awesome man well that's the craft thanks so much for listening to this episode If you like this episode, please follow the show so that you get notified about the new ones that come out. We drop a new episode every two weeks on Wednesday mornings. And also just please send the link to one friend that you think would enjoy this interview. That helps us so much. If you have any ideas for other people we should have on the show, topics we should talk about, or even just feedback on how we can improve, you can send us an email at heycraftpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewell.work or on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.